really here. All right. All right. So we are live. Hello, everyone. It has been too long. You are tuning into the left lens with Margaret Kimberly, uh, the co-host, and myself, Danny Haifong. And today we have a special guest. We are going to be talking to Daniel Z. He is an associate editor at the Canada Files, so we can discuss the role of Canada in this larger imperialist project. And he can talk about all the great work that the Canada Files is doing, um, really uh, intricate work, deep work on Canada's role in this uh, global empire led by the United States. But first, I just want to say whoever's watching this, if you're on Twitter, and I'll be saying this throughout, if you're on Twitter, if you're on Facebook, um, please do go to the YouTube channel, The Left Lens, and like that video. Make sure that if you're coming on here, you're liking the video because that mm -hmm. helps with the algorithm and it helps get this video boosted so Daniel's work uh, can be promoted and so our channel can continue to get the support. So if you're on Facebook, Twitter, go to YouTube at the left black at Black Agenda Report presents the left lens. But without further ado, let's bring on Daniel so he can get the full hour because he's been doing a lot of work. Hi, Daniel. How are you? I'm doing very well. Great. It is great to have you. Um, you know, you all at the Canada Files have been doing such deep work on the role of Canada in reproducing and really expanding this uh, nightmarish imperialist project led by the United States. And recently you've written a, a really great article, which uh, afterwards we will definitely link in the description, talking about how Canada has been a key force in propping up and militarizing the Colombian government. Recently in Colombia, uh, back uh, this spring, we saw huge unrest, uprisings, protests that have been brutally suppressed by uh, government forces, the police, the military. Would you mind talking to us about and our viewers about that <laughs> investigation, what you found and why is it so important? Why is it so important to cover Canada's role in all of this? So basically to give a brief recap of the protests. Since April 28, 2021, Colombia had what was, in, no, in April 28 of 2021, a series of strikes and other ongoing protests in, manifested against the healthcare reforms proposed by incumbent president Ivan Duque. These healthcare reforms were framed as to basically as COVID relief and to test out the basic income program. But the reality is that these healthcare reforms were actually tax reforms that would have provided massive breaks for corporations while overtaxing the impoverished working class. <clears throat> and opposition to this tax reform led to the protests. And these protests had wide range of support from Colombian labor unions, student activists, various social movements tied to indigenous women and African Colombian communities and and social organizations. So the protesters demanded not just the end to plan tax reforms, but the resignation of the Colombian government and the trials of many government officials, including former President Alvaro Uribe for crimes against humanity. And <clears throat> while the Colombian government had scrapped its tax reform plans, they, it, uh, they are not keen to relinquish power. Their responses have been extremely horrific. Protesters have claimed that they have been 2,000 instances of police brutality, multiple cases of rape and other sexual violence, and 200 disappearances. And it's been estimated by various NGOs that 34 deaths have occurred during the course of the ongoing protests. On protests, with Amnesty International also noting that the Colombian government has been illegally detaining and torturing protesters with excessive force being used in cities such as <coughs> Cali. And just recent, more recently, around July or late July or early August, the Colombian government launched mass arrests of suspected demonstrators with 170 protesters 
being detained for their role in anti-government demonstrations, particularly those tied to the Premier Linea protest collective. That's how I think. <coughs> I think uh, I I uh, pronounced it. Which they were basically protesters that armed themselves with stones and improvised shield to protect protesters from police. With the charges being deployed against them was basically <coughs> low intensity terrorism. So now with that basic situation described, now I'm going to talk about、uh, why can't the Canadian connection to the crisis in Colombia? <coughs> so. When the protests flared up, many activists in Colombia noted that the Colombian police used armored personnel carriers to suppress political suppress the political opposition. These APCs were not manufactured in Colombia; they were manufactured by Incas, a Canadian company operating in Barrie, Ontario, specializing in the design and production. Of a wide range of armored vehicles like SUVs and the military executive SUVs, personal carriers, and military vehicles. When the not with the Colombian National Police first acquired Incas in 2014 in response to the FARC insurgency, which was a re, one of the longest insurgencies, perhaps the longest running insurgency in the history of the. The Americas with the FARC, with with the FARC or the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia rising up to establish a socialist government and demand and push for equitable land reforms. As eighty three percent of Colombian land has been owned by a small privileged elite, and、uh, this has been going on for like decades, if not centuries, from my. Discussions with Pablo Vivianco, the former director of Telesur and current member of the Canadian <clears throat> Latin American Alliance. So these vehicles were bought from Canada first to use against FARC, and now with the peace treaty signed since with the signing of the peace treaty, they've been used against social movement leaders and other people protesting the fact that. The conflict really never solved any of the systemic problems, and this is in part due to the far right centered around President Alvaro Uribe, former President Alvaro Uribe, and his and his party have actually played a role in sabotaging the Colombian peace treaties to make sure no agreement was reached that could provide sort of land reform in the conflict zones and. To basically weaken any protections being prepared for like women, LGBTQ, and indigenous and Afro-Colombians. So basically, like the Colombian government has been like use being bar- borrowing from getting these APCs from Canada against FARC, and now against the people that's continuing to oppose the ongoing injustice perpetuated by the. Colombian far right and the the paramilitary for <clears throat> forces and the the Incas was not the only company where Colombia got the APCs in 2015, as noted by the International Quality and Productivity Center, Colombia paid 84 million for 32 bulletproof armed vehicles that were used to saber rattle with Venezuela because the.、Mm-hmm. The Colombian government blames the Venezuelans for basically fomenting FARC supposed terrorism by FARC in Colum in Colombia, and this is not the only pop- the aid given by Canada doesn't just stop there. In addition to allowing the sale of APCs to the Canadian government by the Canadian companies, the Canadian government. Under Stephen Harper, had made it easy for Colombia to buy arms from Canada in its effort to arm its military and paramilitary groups against FARC. On January the second, twenty thirteen, the Harper government basically added Colombia to the automatic firearms 
country control list that it basically allowed them to purchase assault rifles from Canada. And this basically led to a uh, outcry from Amnesty International and Party of Plowshares because of the human rights abuses of the paramilitary groups. But the Canadian government just ignored these concerns. And my research has found that this support for the Colombian government goes back even further to the 1990s under the question and early 2000s. The Canadian government then found ways to circumvent arms export limitations by sending CH-135, Huey, and Bell 212 helicopters to be first delivered to the U.S. and then shipped to Colombia through the U.S. So we can see here a sort of like the converging of the Canadian imperialism and the American empire in try its imperialism in trying to basically impose the to prop up the far right government in in Colombia. These helicopters were of course used in operations against the revolutionary armed forces forces and and it and the helicopters weren't just the only arms that were armaments that were being shipped. Companies such as the Montreal-based Pratt and Whitney built jet engines to be used in Super Tucano aircraft that were manufactured in Brazil, but the engines were clearly provided in Canada. So you can see from the sale of helicopters and fighter jet parts that the Canadian government basically like, even if they don't deliberately deliver the arms shipment to Colombia, they use basically some they use some underhanded methods or some some backdoor, like say, providing these equipment, the tools to Brazil to build these planes to be used in Colombia or to sell them through the help of the U.S. And this isn't even getting into the direct support provided by Canada in providing military training for military and security forces. The Colombian, the Canadian embassy in Colombia notes that the <clears throat> Canadian government provides military training to Colombia through the anti-crime capacity building program, as which allows Canada to provide 5.4 million to strengthen Colombia's security force. And these security forces were trained by the RCMP and the Canada border. Daniel, let me let me just ask you a question really uh, quickly. I know there's a lot of uh, uh, information. Uh, it's clear from what you've said um, that and what you've written that Canada is a U.S. partner in imperialism, yes. in and in uh, and not just in Colombia either. In in Haiti and uh, mm -hmm. um, other countries interfering Haiti. in Venezuela, Venezuela Bolivia, the right. So, so here's my question for you. Americans tend to think of Canada as being more progressive than their country, um, but that is definitely not true. Politically in Canada, is there, uh, is there pushback from, uh, from uh, Canadian citizens on these, um, uh, regarding these interventions, uh, uh, you haven't talked about it yet, but Canadian mining companies play mm -hmm. quite a role um, around the world in uh, mm -hmm. uh, in these uh, in imperialist interventions. How do how do Canadians see what their uh, their government uh, uh, is involved in? So yes, so this is what's particularly. Good unfortunate regarding her Canadian perception of their government's crimes. Foreign policy is quite literally not a topic that's been discussed in Canadian political discourse. Like we the met the, the, there's a section of the American liberal and even some progressives that basically view Canada as a nation that America should aspire to rather than being America's imperial partner to the North. And basically like this myth is kept apart by the fact that Canada doesn't promote foreign policy. It, it basically promotes this idea of quote unquote peacekeeping despite the peacekeeping being obviously tied to some dubious or imperialist act aspects, especially in places like Haiti. And 
basically what I'd say is that the this there's not really a lot of of like SPAC support for like uh in anti-imperialist foreign policy in Canada. The three major parties, the Liberal Party, the Social Democratic New Democrats, and the the Conservative Party, as well as the far right People's Party, they're all united with the same foreign policy beat, which is to proper right-wing regimes such as the fascist Bolsonaro regime in Brazil, the far-right fascist Ivan Duque and U regime in Colombia, really behind, before him, the attempted coup by Juan Guaido in Venezuela and Anies in Boliv Bolivia, and basically, as well as not just in here, but also to basically ratchet up the support for for Cold War with China, which itself fed into the arrest of Meng Wanzhou recently when recent recently who recently was released on some a conditional agreement. It fed into the Canada basically acting as the US's imperial lapdog and uh, and arresting Meng Wanzhou and no one in Parliament barring a no, not a lot of, virtually no one in parliament, like really like uh, raised an eye on this and basically the, so there's this unified imperialist consensus that's been propped up by the fact that foreign policy is not, it has been obfuscated and suppressed in can Canadian the political discourse. It's always about domestic or economic, but no one talks about like say the cost, the uh, the role Canada had in maintaining the U.S. imperialism in in favor of its ties to the U.S. and the various mining companies that now own seven percent now constitute seventy five percent of mining industry globally. Yes, well, I, I think you bring up a lot of important points, Daniel. And today, I know in Canada is Truth and Reconciliation Day. Is is that happening? Today, and that is in relation to, and I'll, I'll let you explain some of the hypocrisy around this, but mm -hmm. it's in relation to the boarding schools that Indigenous peoples in Canada. Rather than Right, the, yes, exactly. And so let's, let's move to China and let's move to some of this, uh, the, this hypocrisy in terms of the propaganda that Canada promotes, similar to the United States, promotes itself as kind of a, a quote-unquote liberal democracy. And then we just saw, as you mentioned, the release of Meng Wanzhou, which everyone should really raise their glass. Um, and, and a lot of the hard work that you, Daniel, and I know a lot of Canadian anti-war activists, I know I saw Arnold August in the chat, um, mm -hmm. A lot of anti-war activists in Canada were really as, committed. Yes, like Canada Files, Arnold August, as yes. well as the Hamilton Coalition. The Hamilton Coalition, to stop yes. Got to shout out the Hamilton Coalition to stop the war because they mm -hmm. uh, did a lot of work around the uh, free Meng Wanzhou campaign. And now she is free. And that is incredible. And we should definitely all be celebrating that. But tell us about this agreement, because you also wrote a piece recently. You co-authored a piece with your uh, fellow editor, uh, Aidan Jonah, about the, the two Michaels, as they are called, uh, those who were recently released uh, by the central government in China as a condition for Meng Wanzhou's uh, release. So tell us about that story. <laughs> How is it different? Because there's a lot of false equivalencies in the media right now that we're seeing where uh, the two Michaels are being uh, as innocent. Yes, as innocent uh, bystanders. They got caught in the crossfire of this tech war, of this war between two countries. What What is the true story behind the two Michaels, uh, if you if you wouldn't mind telling <clears throat> so, our audience about them? The two Michaels, despite the fact, the two Michaels are actually a great way how the Canadian government tries to push foreign policy to the sideline. And try to make people, both the Canadian government and, it, and the apologists for the Canadian state, push the idea of the foreign policy to the sidelines. Because the Canadian mainstream media, if you look at it, as you said, promotes the idea that the Michaels are innocent, that the victims of the supposed, quote-unquote, bad China. But our research shows that 
the actually spies and the ghost operations in China, it isn't good. So the, the Michael Kovig, he's a member of the International Crisis Group, which framed itself as working to prevent wars and maintain global stability, yet as exposed by the Great Zone and the New Left Review before them, its policies have been actually used to enforce regime change and the expansion of NATO and other U.S.-led alliances in Europe, the Middle East, and around the world. In places such as, as like the ICG itself played a role in spreading the intervention of NATO in Yugoslavia and ratchet and promoting the U.S.-led invasions of Afghanistan and Iraq. In Syria, they basically whitewashed the uh, Al Nusra Front and allowed the leader, one of the leader, the leaders, Muhammad Al Julani, to be platformed by PBS, a seemingly liberal mainstream US news outlet in June of 2021. And they worked with the Taiwan People's Liberation Force to basic which had been responsible for atrocities like killing their own citizens and using child soldiers, even stealing aid, foreign aid, in order to be working with them to basically manufacture concern for a secessionist, secessionist war. And so basically it's clear that the ICG is not good news. And Michael, well, what, what does Michael Kovic role play in this? Now, ICG, after the Iraq war, they sought to facilitate regime change in Iran and North Korea. And in North Korea, the Michael Kovic real Chinese, the plan of the ICG was to basically push North Korea to abandon its nuclear program, which didn't work out. And they basically gave them or tried to force them to surrender their nuclear program and try to, if that doesn't work, try to get consent from China to and Japan in order to cooperate for a military invasion. <clears throat> and COVID made it clear that Chinese cooperation in his writings is needed to facilitate this regime change. And so he notes, for instance, that that like when Xi Jinping started to improve relations with North Korea, he basically viewed this as a potential danger in the IC to the ICG's ICG's goals, and it shows that basically the ICG, they're to this day still committed in fermenting regime change in North Korea and perhaps China too. Well, you know, it's funny, um, uh, Daniel. It sounds like the ICG is just a, a cutout for the surveillance state. Is that uh, correct to say? No, the ICG is an international crisis group. It's basically. No, no, I know. I- I know what it is. I know the, the acronym, but it sounds like the role that it plays is uh, a role of backing um, uh, the surveillance state and backing the all the imperialist actions that we've been talking about. Indeed, and it actually functions as a sort of surveillance state to like the government is targeting. So Michael Spavor is friends. Let me just to discuss this it's important to go over a bit about Michael Spavor. Michael Spavor was <clears throat> was basically, he created a sort of a tourism industry called Peg2 Industries working in North, North Korea. And he basically made contact with figures in the North Korean government and even personally met with Kim Jong-un. And he basically used this Use this inf- use this uh, position to take pictures of military equipment as well as infrastructure being prepared for the Belt and Road Initiative. And what's so interesting about that is that when they were arrested, the Michaels were accused of being uh, the Michaels were accused of being uh, conducting low-level espionage through these photos and. Since Spav, since COVID works with the ICG, I can only assume that basically, I, I, my guess is that, and my observation, or rather, is that the Michaels, they're deliberately taking military hardware pictures and the pictures of the infrastructure for Belt and Road so they could be sabotaged by the ICG and by 
U.S.-led alliances in the Asia Pacific region. Okay, and let's, so let's, let's oh, sorry, so oh, you go. I just have one, just one quick follow-up. Sorry, Danny. I know we usually okay. alternate, so I'm butting <laughs> Danny's time. Right. Uh, um, you know, the the case of Meng Wanzhou is is interesting. That um, if the Canadian government had been smart when the Trump administration asked mm -hmm. to arrest her, they would have said no. Uh, the case was not a good one. It's something that's generally held civilly. The United States doesn't have uh, uh, the right under international law to snatch people up anywhere in the world. But what I have seen in, uh, from uh, Canadian commentators is that there's very little pushback about the decision to have arrested her in the first place. And then people have been whipped up into this patriotic frenzy about the two mm -hmm. Michaels and China is so bad. So it seems exactly. to me that nobody's asking hard questions about how that decision was made in the first place. Is that is my observation correct? It's a hundred percent true. Even like the only people who are like uh, criticizing this are the anti other various genuine anti-war organizations, as well as elements of as well as the Communist Party of Canada, which I am a member of. And elements of the left flank, like of the NDP, that's been shut out by the rest of the parties, both their social democratic and their, their more center left wing, both wings of which have have shut out their, their far left flank while marching to the beat of the cold the cold war in the Cold War in uh, to against China. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, and you know, Meng Wanzhou, she, what's so interesting I think about her case um, is that she was really, uh, there's all these talks about this crossfire between the US and China around big tech. Meng Wanzhou, a big part of this extra, mm -hmm jurisdictional kind of dictates that Canada and the United States mm -hmm. were enforcing against her this idea that they have any right to to really imprison um, a, a CFO of a, of a Chinese corporation is ridiculous based on what they were saying was that she uh, committed fraud which placed uh, uh, HBSC at risk of essentially violating our sanction, U.S. sanctions on Iran. So this just goes to show how much Canada is really a junior partner of the United States, that they'd be willing to keep Meng Wanzhou in, under house arrest for three years based on the assertion that the U.S. has the right to uh, uh, you know, enforce jurisdiction internationally uh, uh, around sanctions. But uh, more than that, what's so interesting about what you're saying, Daniel, is that the two Michaels were literally engaging in what could never be participated in by you, me, any of us on this stream, anyone. <laughs> if we tried to do that to the Canadian military, to the U.S. military, we would be run off and, and, and probably arrested as uh, uh, committing espionage for what these individuals were doing in China, literally taking pictures, literally using the tourism industry, sitting on the DPRK Chinese border to essentially spy on both countries, spy on China. And we're supposed to believe that these individuals are not only innocent, but also a vic also victims, victims of so-called Chinese quote unquote authoritarianism. This is, I think, one of the most insidious parts about this new Cold War drive led by US imperialism, but of course uh, happily followed by Canada, is that it turns literally our enemies into heroes. This is the whole idea is to make us believe that US wars and Canada's participation in them are somehow heroic, while on the other hand, someone who is actually innocent, like Meng Wanzhou, literally just doing her job, just just negotiating business with, uh, you know, uh, um, with economic, in yeah, exactly, economic enterprises around the world, somehow that makes her a criminal. And a lot of it is due to the fact that actually China and Canada and the rest of 
the Western world. They just can't compete anymore uh, mm -hmm. around these huge, you know, essential questions of high technology. And so this was really a way to try to, uh, how should I say? Yes, exactly. Assert leverage over Huawei, mm -hmm. trying to destroy that corporation. And it failed immensely. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, it failed incredibly. <laughs> and I think that's, we really need to take note of that. But anyway, Daniel, do you have any comments? <clears throat> no other comments except the fact that you got it really correct that this thing is part of like these moves. I'm also going to know, first of all, this, the, the one of the common accusations about the Meng Wanzhou and the Michaels was that the Michaels were treated in an extremely untransparent and authoritarian way by the Chinese government. This is extremely hypocritical because like the Canadian government, their own spying cases, they've not released any transparent information. For instance, Chinese Canadian naval engineer Qin Quentin Huang from Hamilton was arrested for spying for China on 2017, 20, no, 2013 for passing information on Canada's frigate program. And according to Huang's defense, the warrant and the affidavity are so censored that Huang could not even te testify the validity of the warrant or make any full answers to the defense. It basically put him in an impossible position, <laughs> position where basically they use this accusations to like ferment like leverage against him. So basically like, uh, and they've also not released any information on the 2019 arrest in the of Cameron J. Ortiz, a senior RCMP intelligence officer that was identified as the supposed source of Chinese intelligence by the United States. So they basically like call out China for like being this authoritarian country or just country that's being obsessed with like, like treating people in untransparent ways when their own espionage charges are, as I put it, really untransparent. Mm -hmm. That's, thank you. Uh uh, yeah, it sounds a lot like what happens here with many people who are Chinese nationals or of uh, Chinese ancestry who are uh, constantly being accused, <clears throat> excuse me, of, uh, of uh, espionage and Chinese students are um, uh, some being kicked out of the country altogether, restricted on what they can study. So that does, uh, does sound uh, very familiar. But I, I, I had a, a comment and a question um, about the core group of which Canada is a member, um, uh, which uh, basically treats uh, Haiti as a uh, colony of the US, the EU, Canada, the UN, uh, choosing uh, Haiti's presidents. And we're hearing a lot now about um, uh, Haitian uh, migrants trying to enter the country, along with people from many other countries, by the way, uh, on uh, the southern border. And um, the, the strife in, in Haiti is caused by these interventions uh, mm -hmm. from outside. And can you talk to us about these um, mining companies and their role in, in Haiti and, and in other places um uh in the uh in the hemisphere so i'm going to talk about specifically like uh so i'm going to first talk about like Col like colombia the mining companies in colombia so canadian mining operations in colombia have actually made things really 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 <clears throat> really, Canadian mining companies in Colombia has made things really worse from the from really worse. Basically, since the 1990s, the Canadian government has been working on ways to like liberalize the 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 Colombian economy. And what they've done was basically create a constitutional amendment that gave. Canada, 40% and basically mining companies, 40% of the land in Colombia. And this is, this is really horrible for the Colombian people. Basically, basically like 
the expansion of the power of the Colombian mining companies, thanks to the Canadian proposed mining reforms, it facilitated the weakening of environmental regulations and the weakening of labor protections, while opening land held by indigenous people and Afro-Colombians to further exploitation. And this basically made the already unaccessible land for most of the population even more, even more in a even more inaccessible because like uh, these people like the Afro-Colombians, the indigenous people were basically forced out whenever Canadian mining company was set up shop there and entire populations would be have their homes destroyed due to the rapid expansion of the Canadian mining companies and these mining companies are and these mining companies are basically working with these mining companies are basically working with Colombian death squads to enforce their influence <laughs> in the area. Since, for instance, like Canadian mining companies like Eco Oro Minerals, formerly Great Star Resources, they use paramilitaries as security forces to defend their profits and their extraction sites and facilitate enforce land grabs at the barrel of basically a gun at the expense of work and the what at the expense of working class indigenous and afro colombian populations and this isn't and this isn't the first time my my analysis and my research has has dealt with canadian mining companies in or, i mean the canada files this isn't the first time the canada files has dealt with like say the the in the repression of like the role Canadian mining companies do have in like maintaining imperialism in the global south. In a twenty twenty article we had by Ruhi Ridley on May 9th, twenty twenty, the title was Canadian Mining Companies Exploit COVID nineteen and Repression of Indigenous People in Bolivia Bolivia during for corporate profit. It discusses uh, the Canadian role in the Bolivian coup. And basically, it mentions that the far-right coup regime, they were in talks with the Canadian mining officials to set up <coughs> new mining projects. And the Canadian mining companies have, in the past, looked to the Look to the Canadian look to Colombia as a potential potential site for like let me look to Bolivia as a potential site for the exploitation of minerals. Like in two thousand and seven, the founder of Barrett Gold, who's now deceased, Peter Monk, basically wrote an wrote an wrote an article, wrote a letter, an OPN to Financial Times where he demonized Hugo Chavez and Evo Morales as for their push for mining sovereignty rather than rather and, and increasing public stake in resource extraction to the disadvantage of foreign investors. So Canadian mining companies have always saw Venezuela or Bolivia as the potential targets for the expansion of of the mining industry, which explains their support for the Bolivian coup and their eagerness to get on board with Gini and Nian, the far-right president, opening up more opportunities for the Canadian mining investments. And this is only the, only the tip of the iceberg to say the least. The Canadian mining companies like Barrett Gold has been responsible for horrific atrocities against uh, a horrific atrocities and horrific abuses in the global south, in New Guinea, in parts of of Africa, in the in the Dominican Republic, where basically residents living in near the Pueblo Regional Mine have reported 
basically lumps or lesions, L-E-S-I-O-N-S, that's how on their bodies falling basically because they were basically infected by the cyanide contaminated water in the area and the barrel gold they've been exposed for like in New Guinea and Tanzania according to Mining Watch for systemic security abuses at barrel gold mines and assaults committed against like men, women and children um, indigenous populations. Latin America is just the just the tip of the iceberg. Like Canadian mining companies have invested, according to a Google, a Google, a Google. No, I mean, I mean, a Twitter tweet. Like they've invested in around thirty-one point six billion in operations in Africa, and I just discussed some of the atrocities of the Peter Monk and Barrett Gold. So the yeah. Colombian, so it's the Canadian mining companies have overall played a month. I'm not entirely familiar with, with the role of Canadian mining companies, specifically in Haiti, but they played a large role in like uh, facilitating imperialism as a partner of the U.S. and towards their own corporate ambitions around the world and I would not be surprised if they had some mining interest in Haiti that they would, would wish to see too. Indeed, indeed. For those who are watching, make sure that you are liking the stream. If you're on social media, Twitter, Facebook, do go to the YouTube channel, uh, Black Agenda Report presents the left lens. Come on over, like, participate in the chat, subscribe to the channel. Uh, you have given us a lot of information, Daniel, about just how insidious Canadian imperialism really is. So it's no surprise that you, uh, Aiden, and others have gone together to try to expose this imperialism. Mm -hmm. But I want to give you the opportunity in this last 15 minutes or so to tell the story of the Canada Files. What made you all come together and want to form this media outlet? Uh, what are some of the inspirations and just if you could just tell the story of how uh, your work began. So, <clears throat> so I say that Aiden is, I am a quite, I, Aiden is a much better person to ask about his personal journey and experiences. But for me, I say that one of our, 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 some of our inspirations are, like say anti-imperialist websites like the Great Zone, as well as other like news sites like other anti-imperialist like Latin American news sites like the Orinco Tribune and Telesur. Those were some of our like some of our inspirations. And basically, we we started out in the, we started out right. I started out writing for Counterfouts in in the 2020 uh, in 2020 and uh, in 2020 and uh, we initially focused on more general global on american news well, some of my earlier writings and some of the earlier writings on the site were focused on basically the bernie sanders race but we decided and i even had an article that was basically a pop culture analysis and another article that I wasn't proud of that I've decided to delete and it was basically being used as a target by right-wing uh, articles that I wrote was basically used to basically target me online by right-wing and uh, both right-wing and like say social democratic forces. And so I, that, the, uh, that article has nonsense being deleted, but I have a copy of it, but it's probably not going to see the light of day ever again. But gradually, we focus more on Canadian perspective, focusing on the Canadians, the failure of the social democratic left, the NDP, to take a, to take a firm anti-imperialist stance and the failure of the Green Party, which also had a weird problematic relation with the left to also take a firm anti-imperialist stance. And 
with anti-imperialist stance, and we've also focused on like issues such as the Palestine, the relation of the social democratic parties to the Cold War with China, China, and how one some no some major figures within the party are trying to basically rally up the social democratic left in order to form a sort of bulwark defending the nationalistic flag waving and the drive to the second cold cold war and the the china's response to covid and us seeing the growth of xenophobia and the meng wanzhou case as well as the the, the meng wanzhou case as well as seeing the fear-mongering against china not just from the established press but also from the social democratic and even a few obstinably quote-unquote left press had is part of the is informs us in our push for fighting the second cold war narratives and trying to make foreign policy come to the forefront in the in the Canadian in the Canadian political discourse discourse I believe that like the foreign foreign policy in the end like we really aren't this sort of like good we really aren't this sort of good alternative to the US we're just the same kind of imperialist engaged in the same kind of in the same kind of the same kind of imperialists engaging the same kind of the the sort of imperialist actions and it's really important we bring this to the stage at a time when the social democratic left has given up has embraced fully the right wing of the foreign policy and the elements of the and even elements of the left has embraced the has embraced the right wing of the foreign policy on specifically the Second Cold War. There was a magazine, there was a magazine uh, uh, site in Canada for the left that basically at one point they had, they were going to publish some articles critiquing the Second Cold War, but there was an internal revolt by the more right-leaning members that sought a more anti-imperialist figures leave the outlet and the plans to basically take a stance against the second cold war being dropped in favor of a vague neither x nor y political position that actually ends up benefiting benefiting x in this case would be canadian and american imperialism so i believe that the counterfiles will play a major role in pushing foreign policy to the forefront well, you know, it's it's funny you should talk about the social democrats because that I think the issue of imperialism defines who's really uh, on the left and who is not, um, and we we have that problem here and and uh, throughout the uh, I hate the term West um, <laughs> Europe and the uh, the U.S. Uh, the capitalist uh, wealthier nations that uh, people are allowed to call themselves leftists when they're not, instead of being um, uh, firmly opposed to imperialism. So um, I find that that's not just a problem in Canada, is my comment. So it wasn't, it wasn't really a, a, it a really wasn't. Like, like, I'm familiar with the history of the socialist movement and Marxism. This problem isn't actually something that even emerged recently recently with with a certain part of the left unwilling to take a nuanced look at various situations situations like say the second cold war with china but it goes back a hundred years to the start of the world first world war where you had the more nationalistic oriented and patriotic socialist social democratic and socialist social democratic forces that basically sided with their countries government against the international working class in leading a drive to uh, to war like the key of some of the key offenders were the French German and German social democrats and the labor the, the English 
the the British Socialist Party. It's important to remember that the social democratic ideas, as we remember, we see them, come from come from Edward Bernstein, who who basically rallied against Marxist orthodoxy by painting this idea that capitalism is indestructible and the best the left can do is accommodate to it, which I believe informs the beliefs of the many of the social democrats that they want accommodation into the capitalist and imperialist system because system because under the deluded beliefs that the reforms they seek will somehow be real realized when in fact this position just further entrenches imperialism yeah and i want to add to that too is that we are now in the, uh, an immense crisis i, I mean mm-hmm. it's arguable that in that period the, of 100 years ago there was also a crisis there mm-hmm. was world war there was a world war there was an economic crisis looming mm-hmm. and eventually uh, being the supposedly the biggest one that we've had but now the united states in this entire imperialist system is finding itself for the first time in a state of decline because all throughout that period uh, where you were mentioning daniel it was there was still a vicious competition that was leading to a higher level of imperialist domination, technology, advancement. Now, the opposite is happening. The United States and its junior partners, they're crumbling in a lot of ways. They are imposing vicious austerity and they are using endless war as their principal mechanism for maintaining domination and while there are many similarities to prior periods, now the crisis is so acute that social democrats are not only patriotically defending their countries, they are doing a lot of mental gymnastics and twisting mm-hmm. themselves into pretzels in a lot of ways, trying to maintain the veneer of quote-unquote social democracy in order to ensure that certain interests are not angered like the military-industrial complex, while at the same time posing as so-called progressives. We have that in the United States to an <laughs> e- even more immense degree because in the United States, you don't even have right single-payer health care. You don't even yeah. have any mm-hmm. investment in public institutions of any kind. I mean, that, peer, that has never really existed, and whatever form it had taken in the past has been gone for many years now. So this is a very acute period of crisis with the pandemic, with the economic crisis, with all of the deaths and destruction and that imperialism has wrought. And we do have a lot of, we do have a lot of discontent and some of that has turned into some movement activity. Some of that has turned into despair and the ruling class, this imperialist ruling class is doing all that it can to sustain itself in Canada. I think you bring up uh, such important information about Canada because Canada kind of lurks in the background, similar to the rest of the NATO countries, similar mm-hmm. to a lot of these international imperialist arrangements, even, even these covert arrangements like AUKUS and the five eyes, right? The, the, the partnerships, the partners, they, they kind of lurk in the background. You don't really understand what they're doing unless you have people like yourself covering it. So, so we want to thank you so much for, for this and uh, definitely want to know if Margaret has any closing comments, Daniel, if you have any closing comments, um, if you're watching this, make sure you're liking this stream, make sure you're boosting it, you're subscribing, but yeah, Daniel, do you want to take it away? Any closing thoughts? So some closing thoughts, I believe, so some closing thoughts, I believe that like, so in response to the social democratic, to, to the joint march to a second Cold War by the social democratic figures and by the right and the liberals in the, the, in the, in the, by the right and the liberals, I believe we need a unified movement of the progressive forces that are willing to break ranks with the social demo with the social democrats in order to oppose the sort of the second cold war in canada 
in Canada, we've I've I'm a member of the commune communist party, and despite the fact that the media focuses so much on the communist party's vote share in order to delegitimize in order to delegitimize the social democratic figures, you like to say, oh, you we the communists are just a book club of like four to five hundred people people when in fact like we attend we've shown up in every single rally or demonstration we've organized solidarity rallies for cuba when like the counter-revolution recently was brewing and uh, and uh, we've organized we've consistently pushed back against anti-china propaganda and there's been a growing segment of the people that's been despairing at the ndp's foreign policy that are taking interest in the in the communist party that basically like i think like like so i think that in canada we should have a unific we should have the progressive forces and the that are willing to work against the social democrats and the communist movement against the drive to the second cold war in the US, in the US, I'd say that like organizations like the Chow Collective are doing a a significant job in pushing back against the second Cold War, Cold War proper propaganda, proper propaganda, and and as much as it may be a bit problematic to give them credit, I'd also have to give some credit for the DSA's International Committee in breaking ranks with the rest of the organizations pushed towards like social democratic reform and a pro-US foreign policy in favor of say at least cons considering the at least considering the positions on China and allowing Chow Collective and uh, people like Chow Collective, Vijay Prashad, Vijay Prashad to basically uh, work with them in hosting a no cold war event so i think there is some sort of there is this sort of discontent brewing and i think it's important for the left to to push for a uh, anti-imperialist anti-war movement against the second cold war before it escalates further or worse into a potential hot war that could have catastrophic consequences for everyone and well Yes. Well, thank you so much, Daniel. I just wanted to, uh, as we uh, wind down here, uh, you made some great points about the First World War and these uh, social democratic forces who were not on the right side and ended up uh, uh, joining in this uh, uh, effort in that disastrous, uh, that disastrous war. This is a time for people to remember, to remember those mistakes and for us to have international solidarity. So I'm, I'm very glad you were able to join us. And we talked about uh, um, uh, issues that our two countries have in common and how people who are uh, left around the world can be in solidarity. So the, the, the Canada Files do great work and I'm uh, urging our uh, viewers and listeners to, um, to read the Canada Files because you you guys are doing some really yeah, good stuff. Much so, appreciated. I've shared out Twitter and Facebook information. Oh sure. That if you wish to go, post them on the social on the comments for everyone to see, right, right. do it because do it because like we are currently doing a fundraiser for the Canada Files in order to strengthen anti-imperialist reporting. <laughs> Thank you. In, Thank uh, you so much. In, in, Can you. in Canada. And I think it's important that the Canada files gets further influence and further uh, further influence and to push out to challenge the pro-war media on both the right wing and the social democratic element side of the Canadian politics. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. I've shared those out in the live chat, so definitely uh, check them out. But uh, thank you again, Daniel, of course. Thank you, Margaret, um, for thank coming you. and for doing this tonight. It's been a while, but we will be back next month, 
So uh, peace out. Thank you for the stream. Continue to boost pleasure it, like it. Pleasure to, pleasure talking with you. Yes, it was a pleasure. Peace out, Thank everyone. You. Thank you. Peace. Peace. <laughs>